Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. A 29-year-old mother of three huddled inside her home in a small rural village, unsure what to do. Her country's president had been killed six days earlier when his plane was shot down. And violent chaos had broken out, first in the capital city, and then it spread to the countryside. As houses burned around her, she took her children and fled with many of her neighbors to a school on a nearby hilltop, hoping they would be safe there but evil was headed their way. Soon the school was surrounded by mobs of people armed with clubs, sticks, and machetes. Police stood by and watched as the killings began. Similar scenes played out around the country for nearly three months. Unspeakable crimes committed by militia groups, soldiers, and neighbors against neighbors. And during that time, the international community largely remained on the sidelines. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, the Rwandan genocide. Like most conflicts, the Rwandan genocide did not happen in a vacuum. The underlying issues that preceded the 100-day massacre existed for many years, They were complicated and involved various actors with competing interests. And like most conflicts, in the end, it was the country's innocent citizens who were caught in the middle of what became a violent, unspeakable atrocity. Rwanda is a small country in Central Africa, known as the land of a thousand hills because of its beautiful green rolling landscape. For centuries, the people of Rwanda lived in peace, even though they descended from two different tribes. Hutus and Tutsis often intermingled and intermarried. Historically, Hutus farmed crops while Tutsis tended livestock. It was a division based on class that was somewhat fluid, but gradually that division became ethnic designations. Because cattle were more valuable than crops, the minority Tutsis, who made up about 14% of the population, became the country's elite class. The monarchy in Rwanda, historically, was a a Tutsi institution. They did govern. They were the overlords of the Hutu peasant class. That's Alan Thompson, head of Carleton University's journalism program and former international affairs reporter for the Toronto Star newspaper. He says the division between Hutus and Tutsis was made worse in 1918 when Rwanda became a colony of Belgium following World War I. And the Belgian colonizers played on that and exaggerated those differences and used it to their advantage to colonize and control the country. In a strategic decision, the Belgians favored the minority Tutsis, giving them privileges and Western-style education. In return, the Tutsis ruled the country on their behalf. The Belgians also propagated theories that Tutsis were more intelligent and more refined than Hutus. And in 1926, the Belgians introduced ethnic identity cards used to separate the two tribes. 
By the end of the 1950s, the Hutu majority, which made up 85% of the population, began a violent uprising. In Rwanda, the Hutu formed a political party. In 1960, they brought the feudal rule to an end and abolished the monarchy. The partisans of the deposed king sought to re-establish the monarchy. There were violent clashes, arson, bloodshed. Tutsis fled the country, and in 1962, the Belgians withdrew from Rwanda. The majority Hutus took over the newly independent country, and for the next two decades, Rwanda was ruled by Hutu President General Juvenal Habyarimana. During this time, there was intermittent violence between Hutus and Tutsis, forcing thousands more Tutsis to flee to neighboring countries like Burundi and Uganda to escape ethnic violence. Those who remained were excluded from public service and military jobs, and politicians or journalists who questioned the government's methods were persecuted. In the mid-80s, Tutsis who were living in exile formed the Rwandan Patriotic Front, or RPF, a political and military movement aimed at taking back control of the country. In 1990, they invaded Rwanda, and a civil war marked by fierce fighting between the two sides continued for nearly three years, until a peace accord between the Rwandan government and the RPF was finally reached in August 1993. It allowed Tutsi refugees to return to Rwanda and called for the creation of a coalition between the Hutu government and the Tutsi-led RPF. But Hutu extremists within the Rwanda government were against the accord and they secretly began organizing armed civilian militias, training them for a day when they would strike. And a local radio station owned by Hutu extremists began a process of undermining the peace accord by spreading messages of hate. Radio was very instrumental in laying the groundwork, even at a very subconscious level in some ways, demonizing the Tutsi minority group. Uh, one of the theorists talks about this, this theory of self-defense, that if you can make people believe that what they are doing is actually legitimate, it's a form of self-defense, they are defending themselves from what is going to otherwise happen to them. And so it was very clever, the way this messaging was crafted on the radio station. Uh, it was demonizing the Tutsi, using bits of Rwandan sort of folklore and wordplay to refer to them as snakes and cockroaches. This technique of demonization is something the world has seen before, when Jews were described by Nazis as vermin, and the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia called its victims worms. So this was the situation in Rwanda just before the country would descend into unimaginable horrors. There was a tenuous peace between the minority Tutsis and majority Hutus after three years of civil war. To oversee implementation of the peace accord, the United Nations deployed 2,500 troops to Kigali, Rwanda's capital city. It was exactly the type of mission the UN was designed for, you may remember the UN was created following the atrocities of World War II, in part to ensure that a wholesale and systematic extermination of a group of people would never happen again. 
The UN mission was headed up by Canadian Lieutenant General Romeo Dallaire. It was known by its acronym UNAMIR and had a very strict mandate. It wasn't there to enforce peace. It was just there to observe the process. UN soldiers, mainly from Belgium and Bangladesh, carried weapons, but they were told that under no circumstances were they to intervene. Under Chapter 6 of the United Nations, they could only act in self-defense. Over the next six months, President Habyarimana stalled on his promise to set up a coalition government. All the while, the Rwandan military trained civilian Hutu militias known as the Intira Hamwe, and extremist radio RTLM continued to broadcast hate messages against Tutsis. Human rights groups on the ground in Rwanda began warning the international community that something terrible was going to happen in the little African country. But the warning fell on deaf ears. Even General Dallaire, the man in charge of the UN mission, was ignored. In January 1994, Dallaire received a tip that the military and Hutu extremists were stockpiling weapons in caches around Kigali. The informant said lists were being made of all Tutsis and that militias had enough resources to kill a thousand people every 20 minutes. Dallaire sent a fax to the United Nations headquarters in New York, warning them that something horrible was being planned, possibly even genocide. He asked for permission to conduct raids to seize the weapons. But in a move that has haunted Dallaire and many others to this day, the UN officials told Dallaire to stand down. No action would be taken to disarm the Hutu militia groups. Dallaire later learned that U.S. President Bill Clinton and the U.N. Security Council were reluctant to let him act because of what had happened in Somalia the year before. You may remember that in October 1993, an American special operations team launched a raid in Mogadishu, and two Black Hawk helicopters were shot down. About 90 U.S. Rangers and Delta Force operators who rushed to the rescue were caught in an intense exchange of gunfire and were trapped overnight during an 18-hour urban firefight. It became known as the Battle of Mogadishu and left 18 Americans and hundreds of Somalis dead. News outlets broadcast searing images of jubilant mobs dragging the bodies of dead U.S. Army special operators and helicopter crewmen through the streets of Mogadishu. As a result, newly elected President Clinton halted the mission and ordered the special forces out of Somalia. No one wanted a repeat of that horrific incident. As Hutus stockpiled weapons, reporters monitoring the situation in Rwanda from other parts of Africa and around the world also started getting a sense that something was brewing. But for various reasons, media organizations chose to focus attention elsewhere. I dropped the ball just like everybody else in the spring of 1994. I didn't fully grasp what was going on in Rwanda. And the Toronto Star, the paper that I worked for, did have an Africa correspondent, a guy named Paul Watson, who is very celebrated. He won a Pulitzer for his work in Somalia, but he was he was essentially locked down in South Africa. 
because of the competing story of the end of apartheid and the election of Nelson Mandela. And he very specifically recalls that the star foreign editor at the time told him, you are not leaving South Africa until that election is over. And he was desperate to get to Rwanda because he had a sense of what was going on. And while reporters like Paul Watson may have had a sense that trouble loomed, no one could have predicted the brutal massacre that would unfold over the next several months. In the evening of April 6, 1994, a plane was shot down near the Kigali airport. On board was the Hutu president of Rwanda and the president of Burundi. They were both killed. No one claimed responsibility for the attack, and the initial belief was that the Tutsi-led rebel group, the RPF, was responsible for shooting down the plane. But it is now widely suspected that extremist Hutus were behind the attack, worried that the president was about to finally implement the peace accord, which they were against. Either way, that night marked the beginning of one of the darkest chapters in human history. Immediately after the president's assassination, the Rwandan army seized control of the government. And with the help of the civilian militia group, the Intirahamwe, they set up roadblocks around Kigali to filter out Rwandans whose official ID cards listed them as Tutsis. Hutu extremists went house to house, bludgeoning to death thousands of people, checking off their list of Tutsis, as well as moderate Hutu politicians who had supported the peace accord. That political class was essentially decapitated in the first hours of the genocide. That was part of the operation. We have to eliminate this political opposition movement and then move on and continue this campaign of uh, killing as many Tutsi as possible. Rwanda's prime minister, a Hutu moderate, was second in command of the government. After the president's plane was shot down, UN soldiers were sent to guard the prime minister, who was at home with her husband and children. Not long after the Belgian soldiers took their positions, Rwandan military troops arrived at the prime minister's house. Before I go any further, I need to warn you that what I'm going to describe next is violent and disturbing. As Rwandan troops arrived at the house, they quickly disarmed the Belgian soldiers. Then, they violently beat and sexually assaulted the Prime Minister before she was shot and killed along with her husband. Her children managed to escape and were eventually resettled in Switzerland. The 10 Belgian soldiers sent to protect the Prime Minister were taken to the army barracks in the center of Kigali, where they were brutally tortured for several hours. Finally, General Dallaire received a call that the soldiers were at the Kigali hospital. Dallaire rushed to the scene, expecting to find his men in hospital beds. But instead, he was directed to a small hut at the far end of a courtyard in front of the morgue. In the hut, he discovered a haunting scene. The bodies of his Belgian soldiers were stacked on top of each other like sacks of potatoes. Their intertwined, tattered uniforms and mutilated bloody flesh made it impossible to do an accurate body count. Initially, Dallaire thought there were 11 bodies, but later it turned out to be 10. The killing of the Belgians was seen as a strategic plan by the Hutus to drive the UN peacekeepers out of the country at the start of the genocide. And it worked. Just like the US had done in Somalia after the Battle of Mogadishu, 
Belgium immediately pulled out of Rwanda at a time when their troops were needed more than ever. Thousands of people were being killed every day, their bodies left in the street as the armed militias made their way through Kigali in a frenzy of violence and mayhem. The scenes were horrific, but because there were only two reporters on the scene in Rwanda when the massacre began, it would take weeks before the world would understand the mass atrocity that was being unleashed on Tutsis. Media organizations scrambled to get reporters into Rwanda, and getting news out of the country was just as hard. TV reporters had no way to broadcast live. Tapes literally had to be hand-delivered to Nairobi in Kenya or other neighboring countries. As the rescue of foreigners continued, European soldiers took Western families through streets littered with rotting bodies. Trucks hauled off victims, some of whom were buried alive because there were no doctors to check that they were dead. Alan Thompson says initial reporting like this just didn't get the story right. It was presented generally by the media as a, a civil war, right? That uh, And almost the... the the kind of trope, the stereotype of the tribal anarchy, the tribal civil war of tribes wantonly killing each other in the streets of Rwanda. That was kind of the media template. The media has also been criticized for focusing on the plight of foreigners inside Rwanda. Part of the media narrative was, and this happens, it's a classic storyline, when crisis erupts somewhere, evacuating the, the foreigners, in this case, the white people, uh, going back to Europe and North America. Uh, and then it became so dangerous to be there that just as the story itself was intensifying, the media coverage declined. You know, there's that contradiction. Uh, the story was picking up steam and the journalists, most of them, left. On April 11th, five days after the genocide began, a British camera operator named Nick Hughes, who was freelancing for the news agency WTN, captured some of the only footage of actual killings. Because it was unsafe for him to walk through the streets filming what was going on, he had to do it surreptitiously. Hughes went onto the roof of a school occupied by UN troops and pointed his camera at the unfolding tragedy below. You know, it's blurry, it's from a distance. Um, the camera wobbles a little bit now and then, but he's basically capturing the, the last moments of two people who you can see, once, once you kind of train your eye, you can see these two individuals kneeling on the ground, one kind of crumpled over, and the other person with his arms outstretched and moving his hands back and forth as if he's beseeching his killers uh, or praying, saying something to the to those who are about to kill these two people. And he captures a few minutes of this footage. If you look closely at the footage, it documents the true nature of what was really going on. It wasn't a civil war. It was a planned and deliberate ethnic cleansing. The footage captured by Nick and by Mohammed Shafi, who had been there in the same location, is, I think, the only media video footage of a killing, of the act of genocide taking place. So then when you when you really look carefully at that few minutes, what's going on there, you realize this is targeted. These people have been pulled out of their homes and taken to the street. 
the death squad is no one's running around no one's chasing anyone and then when you look again even more closely a little bit further up the street you see more bodies another little pile of bodies and then a little bit further up there are more bodies so this crew has been working their way down the street killing people and and finally at one point they they come forward with some sort of clubs or implements and and just beat these two people to death Within hours, Hughes took the grainy footage to the airport and gave it to a stranger who was boarding a flight to Nairobi, where it would be delivered to a producer. Then, according to Thompson, Hughes hollered through his satellite phone at the producer, who didn't seem to understand the urgency of getting to the airport to receive the package. The tape was eventually uploaded to London and distributed by the British agency WTN. That night and the next morning, the footage flashed across television screens on CNN and other networks around the world. But somehow the magnitude of what was going on in Rwanda was still lost on the rest of the world. We generally, media audiences, didn't understand what we were seeing. We didn't know we were looking at prima facie evidence of genocide, a death squad at work. We thought we were looking at tribal warfare in a, in Africa. You might be wondering, what's the difference between the two? Why should it matter? Tribal or civil warfare is between organized groups within the same state or country. The aim of one side may be to take control of the country, to achieve independence for a region, or to change government policies. Genocide, on the other hand, is the deliberate killing of a large number of people from a particular nation or ethnic group with the aim of destroying that nation or group. Why it matters? Well, the difference between the two is power. In a civil war, you have two opposing forces, where in genocide, you have one force with the intent to physically destroy a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. And it's defined as a crime against humanity. Meanwhile, in Rwanda, as the mass killings quickly spread from Kigali to the rest of the country, Romeo Dallaire asked the United Nations Security Council for help. But again, he was refused. Instead, he was ordered to withdraw completely. Dallaire was shocked. In the years since, he has pointed out that the world's most developed nations had no problem sending in tens of thousands of reinforcements to the former Yugoslavia at the same time and for similar reasons. But when Black Africans were in need, the world turned their back on them. Despite the order, Dallaire refused to leave, so he was reluctantly given permission to stay in Rwanda with a small force and limited supplies. Just 250 soldiers remained in the country. A tiny contingent of Canadian, Ghanaian, and Tunisian soldiers refused to leave and volunteered to remain with Dallaire, believing they had a moral obligation to stay and bear witness to what the rest of the world chose to ignore. One of their jobs was to guard the thousands of Tutsis who had gathered inside UN compounds and other places like churches, stadiums, and hotels. My name is Paul Rusesabagina. I am the house manager of the most luxurious hotel in the capital of Rwanda, a place that my family and I happily called our home until the day everything changed. Maybe you've seen or at least heard of the 2005 movie Hotel Rwanda, starring Don Cheadle. 
It's based on the amazing true story of a hotel manager who allowed Tootsies to take shelter inside the Hotel de Mil Kalinas. Paul Russo Sabagina, a Hutu who is married to a Tutsi, relied on his connections as the manager of the upscale hotel to call in favors with some of the high-profile people who had been his customers. He used beer, cash, and cigars to bribe army generals and kept the 1,200 people under his care safe for more than two months. Inside the overcrowded facility, conditions grew worse as water and electricity ran out. And when the generator eventually broke down, the hotel was plunged into darkness. Outside the gates of the hotel, things were much worse. Again, what I'm describing is graphic and violent. Those who hadn't made it inside were hacked to death by machete, burned alive, or shot. And similar horrors took place around the country as the killings continued. Tens of thousands of rotting corpses are washing up on the Ugandan side of Lake Victoria. That's prompted the government there to declare a disaster area because of the risk of disease. Officials are appealing for international assistance, saying they do not have the means to remove the dead bodies. In Nairubai, a district in the east province of Rwanda, the nightmare began on April 16th, 10 days after the president's plane was shot down. More than 30 Hutu killers carrying knives and clubs surrounded a church where Tutsi men, women, and children had taken shelter. The violent mob threw grenades into the large red brick building and butchered anyone who survived the blast. In just two days, 35,000 people were killed inside the church and the nearby neighborhood. Eyewitnesses said the killers left the scene of the church singing that they had killed all the Tutsis. The killers were militiamen and Rwanda soldiers, but they were also regular Hutu people who turned against their Tutsi neighbors. The Hutu extremist radio RTLM continued to broadcast messages encouraging Hutus to grab garden tools and anything else they could find, then hunt down and kill or maim Tutsis who had lived in their community. The station even broadcast the names of people to be killed and their whereabouts. Then, the radio played music that the militiamen could dance to as they killed. The slaughter of Tutsis continued for 100 days, until the Tutsi RPF, led by Paul Kagame, restarted their offensive and took control of the country by cutting off government supply routes and taking advantage of deteriorating conditions in Rwanda. They finally seized control of Kigali on July 4th, 1994. By then, between 800,000 and 1 million people, mainly Tutsis, were murdered. Up to 250,000 women were sexually assaulted, many of whom were infected with HIV. And 95,000 children were left orphaned. The crisis was far from over. As Kagame and his Tutsi-dominated party assumed leadership of Rwanda, more than two million Hutus fearing retaliation left the country, making a perilous journey to the Democratic Republic of Congo and other neighboring countries. The refugees are starting to die by the hundreds along the roadside, where they stay until somebody comes by to take them to mass graves. Right now, it's mainly dehydration and hunger that's killing them. Relief agencies simply cannot airlift in emergency supplies quickly enough. As refugee camps became overcrowded, they were hit by a terrible cholera epidemic, striking young and old, spreading through bad water and human waste. 
With no latrines and not enough fresh water, the best the medics can do for many of the victims is ease their last moments and call in the transports when the bodies start to pile up. At least 35,000 people died from cholera, and even more deaths were associated with ethnic violence that continued inside the camps. Some of the Hutus in the camps were militiamen who continued to attack Tutsis, which led in part to the brutal wars that raged off and on in the DRC from 1996 to 2003. The ripple effect of the Rwandan genocide continues to be felt today, on a personal level for the people involved and on a global level for the world at large that chose to turn away. In October 1994, an international criminal tribunal for Rwanda was set up in Tanzania. And it marked the first international tribunal since the Nazi Nuremberg trials following World War II. And it was the first with a mandate to prosecute the crime of genocide. The trials continued over the next 15 years and resulted in thousands of convictions, including the 2008 conviction of three former senior Rwandan defense and military officials who organized the genocide. They were sentenced to life in prison. Romeo Dallaire, the Canadian general in charge of the UN mission, has battled his own personal demons since leaving Rwanda. Dallaire has spoken publicly about how after he asked to be relieved from duty, he began acting recklessly, hoping it would bring an end to his guilt and pain. After returning to Canada, Dallaire attempted suicide four times. One night after an emotionally grueling therapy session, he bought a bottle of scotch, sat on a park bench and drank the whole thing. He spent hours crying and preparing to end his life until help arrived. Now, after years of therapy, Dallaire says he has a will to live, and he continues to be a tireless advocate for veterans, child soldiers, and human rights. But he says a piece of his soul will always remain in Rwanda. I live every day what I lived 20 years ago, and it's as if it was this morning. As for Paul Rusa Sabaginia, the man who saved thousands of lives inside Hotel Rwanda, after the Oscar-nominated movie brought him to the world's attention, he became a human rights icon, especially in the U.S., where he was applauded by Oprah and awarded the U.S. Presidential Medal of Freedom. In recent years, while living in exile, he has accused Rwanda's current president, Paul Kagame, of human rights abuses and alleged that the government is targeting Hutus. You may remember Kagame was leader of the RPF during the genocide, and he has led the country ever since first as leader of the army, then as president, a position he has held since the year 2000. His record has been extraordinarily mixed. He's done an incredible job helping rebuild life in Rwanda since the genocide, but he's also sponsored violence around the region, consolidated authoritarian power, and killed or muzzled political descendants. Paul Rosasabaginia is among those targeted by Kagame. In 2020, the former hotel manager was lured back to his home country under false pretenses and arrested on terrorism charges. In September of this year, he was convicted and sentenced to 25 years in prison. Rosa Sabaginia's supporters have labeled the trial a sham, and they say it's proof of Kagame's ruthless treatment of political opponents. In the over 25 years since the Rwandan genocide, a lot has changed in the world. 
especially technology. And it's hard not to wonder if a similar public killing of hundreds of thousands of people could happen today. Even when no reporters are present, surely many people in all parts of the world have access to smartphones and the internet. But would that be enough? Alan Thompson says, not necessarily. He points to the recent conflict in Syria. It's probably one of the most highly mediated conflicts ever because of the prevalence of mobile phones and the ability of ordinary people to capture images and to share on social media events that were occurring, things that were unfolding. So we were flooded with imagery and information from Syria and still, you know, talked about crossing red lines and talked about and and never effectively acted internationally to intervene and to end that conflict. Thompson says now more than ever, journalists must continue to use every tool at their disposal to tell these important stories when there are vulnerable people who don't have a voice and can't be heard. Thanks for listening to this look back at a terrible time in history. The Rwandan genocide is a difficult story to tell and to listen to, but it is incredibly important to remember. Thanks also to Alan Thompson for his assistance with this story. I'll put information in the show notes about the great book he edited called Media and Mass Atrocity, The Rwandan Genocide and Beyond. Plus, I'll drop in a few other resources you can check out if you want to learn more. This episode topic was suggested by several listeners, including Brenda and Alicia. Thanks to them and all of you who send me ideas. If you have a suggestion, you can let me know. Send me a message on Twitter and Facebook at 1990s History or on Instagram at That 90s Podcast. You can also email me at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kathy Kinzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s. 